Good morning. Let's start with prayer. God, we thank you for your word and that is valuable to us and we can learn about who you are. Would you help us to see your truth this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So 10 years ago, my husband and I packed up all of our things and we moved from the Midwest out to the desert of Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, we lived there for almost seven years. We knew that it was a hot desert climate, but we didn't realize that we were, in fact, moving to the surface of the sun. (laughs) So my relationship with the sun had always been a friendly one. When the sun came out, we were happy. When the sun hid, we were a little bit grumpy. And all of that changed when we moved to Phoenix. We had to learn How do we live in relationship with this giant ball of fire? And sure, I knew the basics. You drink water. You stay in the shade. But specifically, what did that look like in daily life? Well, I was told that instead of basking in the summer sun, November is a great month to lay out to get a tan. Easter eggs had to be filled with stickers and toys because jelly beans would melt in the heat. We hibernated and hid from the sun for the six months of triple-digit weather. On grocery runs, I would leave ice packs in my kids' car seats so that their car seats would not burn them when we came back to the car. The ice would be melted, but their car seats would be cool. So... Life changed, and it took me a while to realize just how pervasive that change was going to be. It affected so many areas of life. And here in our passage, we see that Israel is learning the specifics of what their new relationship with God would be like. More than a relationship with the Son, this relationship with God was going to be all-encompassing. It was going to be costly. And our text is a very long one, a very detailed one. It raises a lot of questions, and I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions this morning. But here's the main idea that I want you to take away this morning. God's rescued people must reflect his image in all of their life by their covenant obedience. God's rescued people must reflect his image in all of life by their covenant obedience. So let's be clear. Israel was already rescued. Their obedience is not a condition on their rescue. It is a result of their rescue. But this redemption was not just freedom for the sake of freedom. This was freedom to be his children, This was complete obedience that God was requiring, an exclusive worship in a covenant relationship. It might help us make sense of our text if we remember that one way you can summarize the big story of the Bible is God's people under God's rule in God's place, or God's people in God's place under God's rule. Um, We're going to mix up the order a little bit, but first we'll see in the first section God's rule. That's at the end of chapter 20 all the way through 2319. So that's a big section, God's rule, uh, chapter 20 to 2319. And then God's place in chapter 23 
to the end, uh, verses 20 through 33, God's place, and then finally God's people, chapter 24. So that kind of gives us a structure of how to think about this passage. First, let's look at God's rule. Now, we've seen the Ten Commandments in great detail over the past two lessons, and think about that as God is giving Israel kind of the dance music. This is his character. Now we get to detailed laws of here are the dance steps. Here's what it's going to look like in life. And he's not asking them to be different from the nations just for the sake of being odd or unusual. He's asking them to reflect his character like little mirrors to the nations around them. So he's marking them as his and letting the whole world see what a good God he is. So in starting in um, chapter 20, verse 22, this is a legal code. It's a law book. It's often called the Book of the Covenant. And I want us to pause for a minute and remember that God is initiating with the people. The people were supposed to come up to him when the trumpet sounded in chapter 20, and they refused. So he comes to them. He makes himself known to them. And both the first section here in chapter 20 and the last section about the Sabbath laws concern worship. So God is first and foremost concerned about his relationship with the people. They weren't to adopt the pagan practices of the nations around them. They had grown up in Egypt. They'd seen that idolatry modeled for them. So the pagan practices were going to be a huge temptation for them. But Israel's altars were to be different, not made with human hands. And perhaps this represents that they're not bringing anything to the table. God's rescue of them is completely his work on their behalf. In the next section of laws, chapter 21, we see laws about slaves or servants. And we inwardly gasp, as we should, when we read about slavery. But I thought our homework covered this pretty well, that this is a term that most likely refers to poor Hebrews who have had to sell themselves as indentured servants in order to pay off a debt. And notice that God is, is making provision for the servants here. This was not to be slavery like they experienced in Egypt. It's not lifelong unless the slave chooses that. They are to be let go after six years, even if their debt is unpaid. And God is also protecting the women who could not provide for themselves well in this culture. If a husband rejected his wife that was sold to him, then there were stipulations. He couldn't just cast her aside and sell her to foreigners. He had to take care of her or she was to go free. So this should not be seen as a justification for modern-day slavery like we think of today. God is not creating a handbook on how they should overthrow all the cultural norms, but he's teaching them, here's how you live honorably under the socioeconomic systems of your day. Um, the next section of laws talks about personal injury, and God is elaborating. Remember, he's given the Ten Commandments. Now he's showing us, okay, we're going to tell about um, Commandments 5 and 6 and 8. And here's where we find that infamous and misquoted phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I really would like to see somebody put that on their letterboard and display it in their kitchen. Um, it's... 
It seems barbaric, but really what God is doing is he's limiting vengeance. So the punishment will fit the crime. Rather than killing someone because you lost your tooth, it is fitting the crime. So even here in the Old Testament, we see God is restraining evil. And we saw in our homework how he's valuing women as equal with men, female servants and male servants. The next section in chapter 21 verse 33, continues into 22, um, talks about personal property, and then we have social justice laws. The commandments about false testimonies elaborate on, on commandment nine, and God is reminding the people that just as they were sojourners in Egypt, they should care for the sojourners or the travelers or the alien or the foreigners among them. So God is defending the weak and the vulnerable, the widows and orphans, the poor, the foreigners. And then finally, the book of the covenant concludes with laws about worship again. So chapter 23, verses 10 through 19, speaks about the Sabbath and the three annual feasts. So as you can see, the book of the law is very detailed and it's a little overwhelming But these are God's rules. This is the way he expected his people to live in order to show the nations around what he is like. Did Israel keep these laws? We know that they didn't. They couldn't. So what is the purpose of the law? Well, for us, as we live on this side of the cross, we know from the New Testament that um, God gives us the law to show us and Israel our need for a perfect law keeper. The law was impossible to obey. It was good, it restrained evil, and it shows us our need for holiness and that we can't do that. So Christ came and fully, completely reflected the image of God in his very identity and by his obedience. He lived perfectly obedient in our place and died and rose again so we could be rescued from this law and from our slavery to sin. But what do these rules actually mean for us? Well, we have to remember that this was given to a political nation state that was ruled as a theocracy under God's rule. And they're given in a different culture and location and time period. So Christians today are not bound by the book of the covenant, but we are under the new covenant. The new covenant makes demands on our lives in the New Testament. We are not ethnic Israel. We don't have these external signs, but we do have internal markers that point us out as Yahweh's people. So the new covenant demands obedience that we are more and more to be reflecting God's image in our culture. So on this Valentine's Day, think about how are we loving others around us? I highly doubt that you're donkey-sitting for your neighbor. Maybe you are. But how do we value people and their property? Are we loving them like God wants us to love them? Are we assuming the best of people and their motives? I know I'm guilty of this. When someone doesn't live up to my expectations, I jump to really harsh judgments and wrong conclusions. And I've actually been really encouraged by watching 
you all be so gracious in your response to others, and it's been really rebuking for me, and I want to grow in this area. We have physical neighbors. When that physical neighbor does something annoying again for the 20th time, how do we speak about that neighbor to our children? I've had to confess to my kids and to God that I love my privacy and my things more than I love people. So God might not be calling us to champion a cause in large ways, but how are we championing the weak and vulnerable people that he has placed in our lives? Maybe we can't foster or adopt, although I know many of you in this room have, and I commend you for that. But maybe we can offer babysitting to someone who is fostering. Maybe we can bring a meal to that newly adopted family. Perhaps giving to the poor means giving time or money to the Portland Rescue Mission, or maybe just making up Ziploc bags full of granola bars and water bottles and socks to give to someone at the stoplight. How do we speak about the refugees or people who have a different culture than us? We might not have all the answers for their situation, but we can at least speak kindness and love over them. So we see these are God's rules. Now we're going to look at God's place. In chapter 23, verse uh, 20 to the end, we see God's place for his people. Now, there have been hints that a place is coming. After all, you don't need laws about fields and vineyards for a group of nomads wandering in the wilderness. The book of the covenant is anticipating they will soon be brought into God's place, Canaan. And uh, this section is kind of like rules of engagement. Here's how it's going to go down as you enter the promised land. God promises the angel of the Lord to lead them. This angel has God's name in him, and he he is to be carefully obeyed. Verse 22 tells us that actually by obeying the angel of the Lord, they're obeying God himself. The angel would guard guard the people and bring them into God's place. Now, there is some question as to who the angel of the Lord is. Some scholars think that he is a pre-incarnate Christ, Um, Others think he's a visible representation of God's presence, kind of like the pillar of cloud. But even though we don't maybe have all the answers, we understand that this is closely tied to Yahweh's presence and his power. And he wasn't just a friend coming along as they entered the promised land. He was going before the people, shielding them, and as a mighty warrior, driving out the nations before them. But the people had to obey him completely in order to receive the blessings. This is a conditional covenant. If they obey, then God will bless them and bless them abundantly. He would bless their food and water, their fertility, their uh, long life and health. If you look at verse 30, um, God says that he will drive them out before you. God is fighting for the people. But then in verse 31, it says, um, and you shall drive them out before you. So the people fought as God fought for them. And notice that God's plan is to progressively give them the promised land. It's little by little. It's not all at once. 
God was going to give them possession as they grew and multiplied. And this was going to be a new Eden where God was going to dwell with them. Now, God's place for us, his church, today is not Canaan. We are heirs of a land that's to come, the new heaven and the new earth. But I do think this picture of the promised land does have implications for us as he is already making our hearts new. He's already coming to dwell in our hearts. And we live in the already, but not yet. God is progressively sanctifying us, little by little, transforming us into his image. So this picture of the progressive possession can picture our sanctification. Yes, obviously, once we turn to Christ, we're completely his, and he owns us. But there are still battles to be fought. There are still idols that need to be broken down. And we are people in progress. So as he reveals that grip that an idol or a flesh has on our heart, he commands us to obey, to submit and fight alongside the Holy Spirit and allow God to give us the victory over those. Now, what does that look like to fight and ask the Holy Spirit to fight for us so we can turn from idols to God? Well, for me, mental pictures really help. So if I imagine my sin as this savage animal that needs to be killed then I'm more likely to run from it and turn to Christ. Really what I want to do with my sin is I just want to tame that pet and think, oh, I can just keep it around and make it nice and domesticated. But God says, if I don't kill that sin, that sin is going to kill me. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe mental pictures don't do it for you. Maybe turning on worship music and letting other people sing those promises to you and plant those promises in your heart again is a helpful way to repent. Um, Or just closing the computer or our screen and going outside, not feeding that jealousy, but thinking about all that God has blessed us with. Sometimes even just texting a friend and saying, I'm having a rough day, would you pray for me, is enough to turn our hearts back to Christ. So God has already won the battle for us, but he still wants us to fight And don't get discouraged if your progress is slow. Slow progress is still progress. And if you don't desire God more than you desire your idols, be encouraged that you want to want God. And bring that to the Holy Spirit, and he can transform our hearts in only ways that he can. So finally, we come to chapter 24. We've seen God's rule and God's place, and now we'll look at God's people. They're already God's people. He's already redeemed them. But here, the covenant is being confirmed, or it's being put into effect. We saw back in chapter 20, the people would not go up to God. So God comes down to them. This is a God that wants to dwell with his people. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24, The word says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Here it's interesting. We kind of have a foreshadowing of the tabernacle that's going to come. There are three stages of worship, three groups of people. First, there's the congregation's going to worship from afar, kind of like the courtyard of the tabernacle. And then 
Moses and the elders and priests will go a little closer, kind of like the holy place. And then Moses alone will go and worship with God like the holiest of holies. So there's three different stages of worship. And in the first one with the people, Moses tells them the laws of the book of the covenant. So if you find it hard to stay focused on a Sunday morning, you can always be thankful that a legal code is not being recited to you. And perhaps that will encourage you to focus again. But the people listen, and they answer, yes, we will obey completely. And then Moses takes the time to actually write out the whole legal code. And the next morning, he builds an altar, and the young men offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. And these offerings ratify the covenant. They sanctify them as a nation of priests. But then surprisingly, he's already told them the whole book. He reads the whole book to them again. And again, they say, yes, we will obey. And that's when Moses sprinkles the people with the blood of the covenant. What's going on here? We don't really think of blood as a cleansing agent. Oh, my bathroom's dirty. Let's sprinkle some blood in there. Um, But in the Bible, obviously, the blood um, shows, first of all, the two parties of the covenant. He cast it on the altar. God is one party, and he cast it on the people. The people are the other party. But he's also cleansing them with this blood, making them into a nation of priests. This is what God had promised back in chapter 19. Because they are his and they are reflecting his image, they're going to kind of mediate God's, God to the people. They're going to show what God is like to the other nations. Then the second stage of worship, Moses and the elders and priests go up a little closer and they get a glimpse of God. Now we know that no man has seen God and lived, so this is, we can safely assume he is not viewing God's face, but they see the sapphire stone under God's feet, and God eats and drinks with them. This is remarkable. This is the covenant meal that signifies the peaceful relationship that they have with God now. And finally, in the third stage, Moses alone enters the cloud of God's glory on top of Mount Sinai. Here, God writes down again for them the Ten Commandments. So again, it's that repetition that the words were spoken before, and now they're being written down and recorded. And Moses communes with God, and that's where our narrative ends. So where can we see the good news in this passage? We've already looked at Jesus being our perfect law keeper, but he's also our sacrificial lamb. He made atonement in our place And we are cleansed by the sprinkling of his blood. For everyone who has trusted Christ, we are now priests. You don't need someone to go to God for you. Because we're made pure in Christ, he is our high priest, then we have direct access to God. And as his children, he invites all of us to his table. There's a place at the table for you. We're going to share a covenant meal with our God in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if this idea of relationship with God is new to you, God is inviting you to live at peace with him as his child through faith in Christ. God's rules seem scary and daunting, but remember, Christ has kept them all. He's done everything necessary, and you can have a relationship with God, but... It will change you. This is not life 
without God at the center. This is abundant life where we reflect God and his image. And for those of us who are already part of God's family, take hold of those blessings of this new status. Live a life submitted to God. We can show God's character to those around us when we care for the weak and the vulnerable. Life as God's child is costly, but it is abundant life. And we have God's spirit with us to help us more fully, hopefully over the course of our lives, more and more um, bear God's image here on earth. And when we finally see him, then we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. But until that day, God's rescued people must reflect his image in all of life by our covenant obedience. So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for Christ and that he has kept your laws and atoned for our sins. Thank you that we have access to you through faith in him. And you desire to be with us. We can't come up to you, but you come down to us and you make a way for us to have this relationship. Would you give us eyes to see those in need around us? Would you give us hearts to love them and transform us? to be more like your image as we show love to others today. In Jesus' name, amen.